Jesus really is a revolutionary, not in the way that what Barambas is looking to do or accomplish, but Jesus really is a revolutionary that's going to change the world. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning into the 79th episode of Working with the Word. Today we'll be getting into John chapter 18 with the consummation period of Jesus' work that we read about in the book of John. But before we get into that and mention anything about all of that, we're recording this episode on Thursday, September 1st, which happens to be our second birthday. Yay! So we appreciate all who have tuned in with us and have followed us. Theoretically, if we were doing about a podcast every week, maybe a little bit that different from final four Uh, we should be i think closer to 100 episodes than we are but that's all right we are where we are we're still enjoying doing this we're still growing from this and we hope you are as well today we are getting into john chapter 18 quite a shift in tone and topic here as we're getting to look into jesus's arrest and the beginning of his trials at least to his crucifixion there's lots of great things to see within this text and the things that lead up to that particular moment Lots of things that are built upon what we've seen before in the book of John as well. So we hope you've been following along with us. But even if you haven't, welcome to this study. As we are doing some interpretation and application in this particular episode of John 18, as always, we remind you to do your own observation, whether it be to just quickly refresh yourself of the text by reading this on your own or going back to the previous episode and you can listen to Emerson read John chapter 18 there. All right, so we're picking up in scene one. We're going to call this scene one is, is the garden. Immediately after he gets done praying in chapter 17, Jesus and his disciples go across the Kidron Valley, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So in chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, we kind of see that scene. And if you picture a garden as a place of peace and escape where you can kind of quiet your thoughts. Apparently, Jesus often met with his disciples there. It mentions that in this passage in verse 2, but this this is anything but a peaceful scene, right? This is, this is mm-hmm. the moment when Jesus is arrested. He is going to be led away to be crucified. And with this, the events of the crucifixion are now put into motion. And as we read this, uh, this first part here, what stands out to me the most is how just totally in control Jesus is. Because I think we've already seen He's been talking about his time is coming, his time is coming, now it has come. He knows that this is coming. He knows the the real significance of what's going to happen, though no one else does. And so I think you see Jesus' control in several ways. Um, It's interesting that Judas is mentioned two times in these verses as the one who betrayed Jesus. I mean, we already know that from chapter 13. Jesus has specifically identified him at the Last Supper. He handed Judas the morsel of bread. So we know that, but John is reminding us that what Judas is doing is is betraying his friend and his teacher. And so in, in the place where Jesus would often meet with his disciples for fellowship and friendship, it became the place of, of Jesus' betrayal. And again, this is happening exactly the way Jesus said it would happen in chapter 13. And so when Judas brings the soldiers to the garden in verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus is not asking because he doesn't know what they're there for. He's asking there to surrender himself. Yeah. 
he clearly identifies himself. He doesn't like hide behind a tree or like push his disciples out in front and say, you, you deal with them. I'll be back here. <laughs> no, he, he walks out to them. He basically lets them arrest him. And what Jesus says when they, when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says, I am he. That's really significant in the Gospel of John because that's a phrase that Jesus has used before in chapter 8, verse 58, to specifically connect himself with God, how God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. And so Jesus here is, again, making that declaration of his deity. And there was something about the way Jesus said that that caused the soldiers to just fall to the ground. And I don't know exactly how that happened. I, I'm sure that this was a miraculous occurrence, but in my mind, I could kind of imagine, you know, a shockwave going out with Jesus's words. <laughs> but it's just a ironic scene where the great I am is surrendering himself to death. And mm -hmm. so Jesus is, again, letting this happen to him. He is surrendering himself. And then on top of that, Jesus lets his disciples go, or he protects his disciples. In verses 8 and 9, uh, he says to the soldiers, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given to me. And he said those words in his prayer in chapter 17, verse 12. So again, you see Jesus, he is protecting his disciples while he himself is laying down his own life, just like he said he would earlier in John chapter 10. He's talking about, I'm the good shepherd. You know, these hirelings, they'll run from danger when they see the wolf coming. They'll scatter uh, because they don't care about the sheep, but the good shepherd lays down his life. You see Jesus doing that here. Mm -hmm. Simon Peter draws at his sword and cuts the cuts Malchus's ear off. And what's interesting is that is that Malchus is specifically named. I, I don't think we find that in any of the other Gospels. This is, mm -hmm. I think, unique here. And right. so it's just interesting, an interesting detail. And I think that's important because later on when Peter denies Jesus, one of the people who questions him is a relative of Malchus. And so it's just yeah. interesting seeing that connection there. But Jesus tells Peter not to fight back. Put your sword away. I have to drink this cup that the Father has given me. And so again, you just see him completely in control, completely understanding what's going to happen, completely restraining himself from the power he certainly had to, to refuse to do this. There's an interesting quotation I found in a commentary that said that Jesus retreated and withdrew when people tried to seize him and make him king, referencing chapter 6, verse 15. But here, he is now surrendering himself voluntarily when they seize him and take him to the cross. I thought that was really well said. He didn't come to be their king in the way that they expected. He came mm -hmm. to sacrifice himself for us. Uh, and so we just need to be amazed by his submission there. And before we move on to the next scene where Jesus is going to stand trial, Jesus is going to be carried away for his preliminary hearing before Annas. But want to note one thing, in verse 14, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas the high, is the high priest, and he's the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. So there's this callback that John reminds us of, that uh, Caiaphas, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, of course there is this 
stir among the leaders. What are we going to do about Jesus? And Caiaphas stood up and said, we need to put this man to death because it's better for him to die to spare the rest of the people. And what he said meant much more than what he intended. He didn't realize that he was Mm -hmm. really talking about the significance of Jesus's death. And so John is, I think, using that call back to remind us of the fact, again, that this is God's plan, that Jesus is in control, God's working through this. And so we're just going to continue to see him in control as we move into the next scene with Peter's denials and with Jesus's trials. Right. Maybe thinking of scene two in this particular chapter being there uh, before Annas and the trial he has before him. But along that way, we see Peter and John, presumably John at least, getting opportunity to go and be a little bit closer to this particular interaction. There's a statement there in verse 16 about the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, kind of implied maybe John, just as we've seen in other places in in this gospel. There's the disciple that Jesus loved. John never names himself, but seems to be some evidence about him talking about himself in that. John's able to get Peter to be a little bit closer to where this trial is taking place. Uh, And they may have been standing by a fire, but I don't think that Peter was feeling very warm on the inside <laughs> at the moment. I mean, here's this moment where he's being questioned, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And he denies it, and he says, I'm not. And we'll talk more about Peter's denial in just a moment. We see here Annas being described as the high priest, and we had talked about this in the notes. Originally, this was in Emerson's section, and so I'm going to talk about it, but I want to make sure I give him the credit, <laughs> and he can help me uh, make sure I... If I miss something or if I misspeak, then he can help me get it right. Uh, but you see there are two high priests here. There's Caiaphas and Annas both being listed as high priests as Jesus is going through these trials. Annas was deposed by the Romans around 15 AD, but since the high priest was appointed for life, the Jews still viewed him as the real high priest, maybe with some greater influence. While Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, was the Roman-endorsed official high priest with the legal authority. I think I saw another note Somewhere else that said others of uh, Annas's family, other sons, and even a grandson helped fill some of that maybe more legal position rather than what the Jews honored themselves through the, according to their law. But there being these two high priests, they both have some part to play within Jesus' crucifixion. And so Jesus is standing before Annas on trial, and he begins to question Jesus. And it talks about how he's questioning him about his disciples and about his teachings. There's no questions about, hey, you know, did you really feed the 5,000? Or how did you do that trick where you raised Lazarus from the dead? How did you mm-hmm. make that look like that? We've seen from even John eleven forty seven, these are undeniable events yeah. in even the opponent's mind about what Jesus has done with these signs. But there's concern about Jesus gaining a following through these teachings. But what is there really to inquire about here? Jesus hasn't done anything in secret. Some notes being made or some references being made to even God himself speaking that way in the Old Testament through his prophets, like in Isaiah 45, 19 or 48, verse 16. He's been very public in his teachings of repentance of the coming kingdom of God. While he does maybe have private conversations with his disciples, it's not like he's making a show out in public and then secretly pretending to be someone else or acting like someone else with his disciples. He's very consistent in what he teaches along the way. He even maybe seems to be implying here that I can't just stand before you and tell you what I think about myself. My own testimony isn't enough to prove my innocence. He's kind of talked about that all the way back in John chapter 5, even when he talked about things like, 
looked at the Father's word. Look at Moses. Look at John the Baptist. These are some of my witnesses as well. But all of this is really not to see what they can get about Jesus. They know where they can go to see if Jesus is really a threat. They could go to those who have listened to him and people could say, yeah, that guy was a nut. Or they could say (laughs) something about how, yeah, he told us this and that made us feel kind of like we're having to do something contrary to what the Pharisees or what we're seeing through their examples or maybe something like that. But what we're witnessing here is actually a cruel joke of a trial. I mean, these Mm -hmm. men have already made up in their mind what they want to see happen to Jesus. And it's simply a problem of reliably getting him on the cross. This is not a great way to start a sentence on a podcast, but if I was going to kill someone, uh, I would have taken (laughs) a moment just there in the garden. That's right. For the record, I had no intention to. But, I mean, you've got soldiers, and you've got people there in the garden in that moment. I mean, yeah, you might have to deal with some of the apostles like Peter who get a little bit defensive. But if you really want to take out Jesus, just take him out. But there's this thought of we want him to to be crucified. We're looking for some way to get him killed, and we need some type of evidence to back all this up. Mm -hmm. So there's this harsh treatment against Jesus, maybe claims that he's broken some of the law about blaspheming against God or against one of God's officials. But Jesus is not breaking that law, but rather just standing up for himself for what he's saying being true. That's not against the law, but they're treating Jesus harshly. They're, you know, trying to accuse him of blasphemy or accusing him of things. And where's all this evidence? But it points to their hatred of Jesus. And so there's moving forward in that next phase of their plan. It says that they send them bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We won't get much about that, but we'll talk about some of that right before we get into Pilate. But we go back out to the fire for a moment before we end scene two. And Peter's continuing to warm himself there. You just imagine what's going through his mind, especially after a servant girl tries to out him with Jesus. Again, the group is pressing him there as they're standing around the fire, even specifically, like he mentioned, a relative of Malchus. You know, I don't know who what relative he was, but I imagine him being like, hey, I'm pretty sure you're the guy who just tried to hack one of my family members to death. I think I would remember that and know that. But Peter denies all of that. And there's some very interesting contrast between Jesus and Peter here. Jesus boldly accepting that he is the one they've come to arrest. when He says things like, I am he. And Peter denying those accusations, repeatedly saying, I am not. I know we're in John, but I can't help but think about Luke's account in Luke 22, verses 61 and 62. That thought of after the rooster crows, it says that Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter remembers and runs away weeping. A few hours ago, he was so confident that he would die for or die with Jesus. A moment ago, he was willing to kill people for Jesus, or at least cause physical harm. But now he's fully aware of the fact that he's fulfilled what the Lord told him he would do. It was mentioned back in John chapter 13. And he runs away grieving over the fate of his Lord and his own denial against him. We'll come back to Peter. We'll see Peter again, thankfully, in John chapter 20 and John Mm -hmm. chapter 21, not facing a very same dark fate like Judas. But we'll get back to him before our study of John as a whole comes to an end. So there are some events that happen within Jesus' trials before Caiaphas that John doesn't record for us. We move now to the beginning of Jesus' trial before and his conversations with Pilate the governor and what we're calling kind of scene three that really extends into the next chapter. So that takes us to chapter 18, verse 28. And one of the things that I think I learned from getting ready for this and and, uh, just reading through the last episode, this whole section, is how much detail we have about the conversation with Pilate. 
And I just went back and just kind of compared the other Gospels. So John has more of the conversation recorded between Jesus and Pilate than any of the other Gospels do. And Pilate's just a really interesting, colorful character, very curious to me, because he really seems like he is wrestling with what to do with Jesus. And we'll talk more about this at the beginning of chapter 19. But it's kind of a bad chapter division. Chapter 18 just kind of ends right there with, with the crowd shouting, we want Barabbas, but that's not the end. I mean, chapter 19 picks up with, with that conversation again with Pilate. But as we look at the conversation between Jesus and Pilate or the trials, we see a couple of themes that stand out. One is the idea of truth. And we wanted to highlight that because truth has been a really big theme in the Gospel of John. Look at verses 37 and 38. Uh, Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate asks, you are a king then? That's going to be our second theme is the idea of king. But Jesus replies, you say that I'm a king. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is a really big, we can call it a purpose statement of Jesus, because he's saying, this is what I've come to do. I came to testify to the truth. John has really highlighted that, that Jesus came to shine light on the truth from the very beginning. I mean, going way back to chapter 1 of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, verse uh, 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And throughout his teaching, he has emphasized that idea of truth. I told you the truth and you don't believe. I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And his prayer we talked about a couple episodes ago, your word is truth, he said. And so Jesus really talks about truth in this trial. And just one word of application, when we think of truth today, truth just seems like a very elusive idea, like your truth is not the same as my truth. We can define our own truth. But Jesus here makes this clear claim that his words are truth. It's not relative. It's found in his words because his words reflect the Father's words. That's what he came to do. We see that Jesus talks about truth. But then Pilate responds, what is truth? Of course, this is a very famous passage. To me, Pilate's response, his question sounds very sarcastic. Kind of like he's saying, yeah, right. You talk about truth, but who really knows what the truth is? Who can really define that? Who 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 really knows? Or maybe he's saying, who cares? <laughs> I don't know yeah. exactly what he means. But it he sounds like he's kind of scorning Jesus' idea of truth. But as we think about Pilate and how he's going to be faced with the decision of what to do with Jesus, that question of what is truth isn't just a philosophical question for Pilate. Mm-hmm. It's something that he really is going to come face to face with because he's going to personally wrestle with this all-important question as he's got to make a decision, what do I do with Jesus? I mean, he acknowledges later on in chapter 19 a couple of times he's innocent. Jesus has done nothing wrong to deserve death. But at the same time, he wants to keep his job and his head. <laughs> and so yeah. he, he's kind of torn between light and dark. Do I do the right thing? Do I do the wrong thing? Um, and again, mm-hmm. that's kind of what the whole gospel is all about that Jesus came as light to reveal the truth, and the truth is always going to win out. And so it's a key moment in the story 
as John tells it, Pilate is coming face to face with the, the very one who speaks truth. And the irony in all of this is that a trial is supposed to be a place where the truth comes out, right? Where <laughs> the judges can say, this is what is right, or the, the verdict is given that's truthful. But here, like you were saying, it's just a joke. I mean, the whole trial is just, is just a joke. They already know what they want to do to him. In chapter 18, in verse 31, Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And they say, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. And so kind of what you were saying earlier about they didn't have the ability to crucify Jesus, but they already had that verdict in mind. They just had to find the evidence to back it up. And so that takes us to our, our second theme we wanted to focus on. Um, he claims to be king, right? And they, they certainly didn't like that claim. Yeah, the Jews didn't like that claim. Uh, as Pilate, someone who's trying to uphold Roman government and law, he's not going to like that claim if there's someone else trying to be a king instead of Caesar. Even if there is somewhere in their mind someone who is thinking they're doing the right thing as if Jesus is truly blaspheming, you know, that's only based on their religious law. They can't get the Romans to ju- execute Jesus because mm-hmm. we don't like this guy. They need something that gives the Romans a reason to get involved. And right. So there's this question. It just it seems strange where it just kind of almost comes out of nowhere, at least maybe in my mind, in verse 33. Are you a king of the Jews then? Or are you a king of the Jews? Surely the Jews didn't think so or didn't recognize Jesus that way. But Pilate, through a series of questions, is very much trying to figure out what is you know Jesus all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's not the king like you talked about when they tried to make him the king in chapter 6, thinking that maybe he will be the one that overthrows the Roman government. Jesus says, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to step back in this moment. But now as he is stepping forward, you know, Pilate is very much thinking in a physical line of questions, uh, very physically focused. Is Jesus trying to overthrow the government in some way? And Jesus' answers through this section aren't really helping his case a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> that's not mean to stab against the Lord. Just from our perspective, from our human perspective, you know, Pilate asked him, are you a king? How would you answer that? You know, Jesus does a lot of this, like, you say I'm a king, or like, are you saying I'm a king? And I can imagine Pilate, I'm probably already annoyed that I have to deal with this case anyway, because I don't really care about it a whole lot. And then this guy's being all kind of like sneaky, tricky with his words. I'm just kind of like, I don't know if you're a king or not. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with you this moment. Why is Jesus being so perplexing, so mysterious? I mean, why not just give the straight yes? I mean, he talks about the fact that my kingdom is not of this world. I mean, he recognizes that Jesus is a spiritual king, and that is ultimately the point, that Jesus is doing the work to be that king that was promised through the line of David, be that king who is going to have that eternal kingdom over all kingdoms of the earth that's talked about in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 2 as well. But Jesus recognizes what has to happen in order for all that to come to fruition, for all that to come to face. He has to die, and he has to be resurrected. And so we move forward with this trial. There's so many just strange, ironic, sad, whatever you want to describe it throughout this section that with Pilate. You know, the whole fact that the Jews want to kill this guy, but they're also still trying to uphold their own laws. Right. You know, it seems a lot of like jealousy and hatred towards Jesus, but I'm not going to go into, you know, the courtyard of Herod's location or his headquarters because I want to stay clean for the Passover. You know, that statement of, them saying it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. 
you know, later they're going to stone Stephen, but that seems more of kind of like a out of a riot or a mob mentality, as you mentioned, as we've kind of alluded to. The Romans have kind of taken away that authority from them where the Jewish Sanhedrin couldn't just execute anyone on their own. But one of the most interesting sections here is this final part of this chapter with Barabbas. There's a lot more to talk about with Pilate as we'll get into chapter 19. But Barabbas is such an interesting character that they choose him over Jesus. Particularly some things that we see about Barabbas and uh, his name could be translated son of the father in Aramaic. Where Jesus is the son of the father. Mm -hmm. You have this idea that other gospels will talk about him being a murderer or him being a robber or him being this or that. And John here is talking about him being a revolutionary. You know, maybe he's one of these kind of Jewish zealots who's fighting against Rome. Jesus really is a revolutionary that affects the whole world, not in the way that what Barabbas is looking to do or accomplish probably through mm -hmm. his work as a revolutionary, but Jesus really is a revolutionary or making a revolution that's going to change the world. Most importantly, the contrast of Barabbas is guilty, right. but Jesus is innocent. And so there's still more to learn about this trial moving forward. There's still more to learn before we get to Jesus' death the next chapter. But we'll be looking for more about Pilate as we go forward. So where does this leave us? What's the, what's the takeaway from today? I think one of the things that we have to wrestle with is if we're reading this gospel for the 10th time, 15th time, if we know how the story ends, this isn't a surprise to us that Jesus is arrested and he's crucified because we know how it's going to end. Yeah. But we have to try to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes and realize that this is a totally unexpected thing. And that's the nature of God's plan. Things are falling apart. Things are just not going the way that any of the disciples would have planned. That's why Peter takes out a sword and he cuts off the servant's ear. That's why he denies Jesus because he, his world is being rocked right now. But the point is that even though things are falling apart from their perspective, God's going to use that to put the pieces back together. In reality, that's the way it is with the gospel. That's the way it is when we become Christians, is we have to, our lives have to fall apart in a sense. We have to dismantle our selfishness and our pride, and we have to let God put things back together. We have to let him make us anew. And so I think this whole process just kind of illustrates how God is working through unexpected things in order to do amazing things in his time and through his wisdom. Amen. We are looking to give you a challenge, something you can do beyond this episode and looking into John chapter 18. With all of this maybe fresh on our mind, we want to encourage you to go back and read John 10, particularly the sections where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. And maybe we can make some parallels, make some connections between you know, what Jesus talks about there, about him being the good shepherd, and appreciate that more when we consider that with the thought of his arrests and his trials and his ultimately his crucifixion fresh on our mind and seeing that. So we encourage you to go back and look at John 10 after reading these chapters today. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. Next time we'll continue this conversation in John chapter 19 with Pilate and the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible or difficult passages you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can always find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, 
or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.